Well, good morning, everyone. You know, when Zach points at you at the screen and says, you better be there, you kind of feel like, I better be there. It's kind of intimidating. Ushers, come forward if you would. We'll share in our offering together this morning. Uh, good morning, and thank you for being here. We'll share in our offering, just a reminder, uh, that as you give, of course, you make a difference. But we're coming to the end of the year, and I would just make a, a reminder, like every other group, we are very contingent oftentimes with end-of-year giving. A lot of folks kind of wait to the end of the year and give based on some tax purposes and those things. We've got to two weeks left and that would be a huge help for us as well as we try to balance the books and finish in the black and all those things and so if you can help in that way um, our thanks to you and for participating and joining joining with us uh, this morning before I get into the message, a couple of things for you. You know, you got a card when you came in for Christmas Eve. I just remind you, uh, this is our last week where those cards are effective. And so if you wouldn't mind grabbing that and taking it with you, handing it to someone, invite them along. I would just say to you that you have our service times. 10 o'clock is our first Christmas Eve service at North Avenue. And then we're here for the rest of the day, uh, starting at 1230 and then throughout. Uh, I would just say, if you're going to come to a Christmas Eve service and invite some folks, you want to be on time. Very critical, be on time. Now, Usually it's on time just to make sure you get a seat because seats you do fill fast. Um, I kind of laugh. It's the one service every year where there's like a standing room only in the lobby waiting for the doors open. I like to think you do that every week, but that doesn't happen. Uh, some of you are just now walking in, figuring out that you're in church. So um, be there early. That's the first thing for that reason. But the other reason is I've got a couple of special things and one of those things are going to be right in the very front end of the service. So you want to make sure you're a part of that and participate. And again, by all means, invite someone with you. You saw the ads as well that Zach covered was just volunteers, places in which to serve, areas where we need, uh, where we, where we need help, but also where you can fit, uh, fit in and belong. And uh, we would love to have you come and be a part of just helping, whether it be coffee or night to shine, whatever it might be. This morning, I want to do a message for, for you and talk about, a, uh, give a sermon that's a Christmas message that won't sound anything like a Christmas message. And in fact, it won't be to the very end that in, in two sentences that it kind of connects all the dots so you just have to stick with me as we walk through this. Um, you know, the bottom line is that last week Tom was speaking and some, Tom made a statement in the message that triggered a thought. I remembered a sermon that I had heard. I can't remember it was a sermon, but a, a, a something I was at with Tim Keller. Tim Keller, prolific pastor and preacher out of New York City, has now since gone home to be with Jesus. Said something that triggered my thought process, went back and found notes. And so I want to give Tim Keller credit. I want to preach this morning uh, a number of thoughts from him and with permission, uh, thoughts that I hope will help you in the topic in which we're going to talk about today. Now, last week, Tom mentioned a word, as I said, that triggered a thought process that kind of got me going. And the word that he used was the word pleroma. You may or may not remember him using the word, but he used that term pleroma. And that word is actually not just a word, but it's actually a Greek term. It's one little word that has actually, it's a, it's a statement. And that term is found in scripture. And specifically, it's found in Galatians chapter four, where the apostle Paul is talking about Christmas. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, though it's not a Christmas story, if you will, but he's talking about the arrival of Jesus Christ into this world. He's talking about the day that Jesus Christ came out of the heavenlies and stepped into our history, if you will. He always existed, he always was, but he stepped into our picture, stepped into the, to our world of earth, if you will, born as a baby. And here's the text in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, 
born under the law, when the time had come. That's the word pleroma. If you look it up, you'll find that the, the first definition means the fullness of time. When time had come, or in, if you grew up in the church like I did in the King James Version, it would talk about the fullness of time. But what does it mean? In simple translation today, it just means this, at the right time. At the right time, at the perfect time, Jesus Christ came into our world. Just the right moment. I wonder this morning how many people would admit. Now, I thought about raising hands, but I thought, I'm not going to do that. Because at one point, everyone's going to raise their hand. But what if somebody doesn't? And you don't want to be put under that pressure. So no raising of hands. So you're free here. But here's the question I'm thinking through. I wonder how many people would admit that we have some real struggles when it comes to God's timing in our lives. I wonder how many people will admit that there's lots of times where you find yourself saying, God, what on earth are you doing? I mean, God, I've been praying for you to show up, but you haven't showed up. I've been in a critical moment, and you haven't shown up in that critical moment. I wonder how many people would say that there are times where we look at God's timing in our lives, the things that we've pleaded for, prayed for, and I'm not talking about praying for a new car. I'm talking about some urgent needs, and God has not shown up, at least not in our time frame. And my guess would be that the whole room would raise your hand if I at least put it in this way. How many people would admit, would admit that when it comes to God's timing in your life, there's a lot of moments that you just don't understand it? And we'd all raise our hands. Times in our life where it just seems so evident, it seems so obvious what needs to be done and when it needs to be done, and yet God somehow, it seems to us, doesn't show up. It leaves us, I would say, at times, many times perplexed. But, you know, and that happens for little things, but how about some of the major things? How about moments in our lives where you might be praying, God, um, I want a husband. How come I don't have a husband? How come I don't have a, a, a wife, a spouse? You know, God, why haven't you healed my marriage? I've been praying, and you know it's critical. I've been working really hard at my marriage, but it's not getting any better. Where are you? Why didn't you save my son? Why didn't you save my daughter? There was a critical moment, God, that all you had to do was show up and say the word. And let's be honest, sometimes God's timing just doesn't make sense to us. And I'm not suggesting that you have to be angry at God. But at times, I would say perplexed. Would you not agree? I'll give you an example, a personal example that you'll relate to as a church. So we just recently announced the selling of the property in Williston. If you know anything about it, you're talking about an over 20-year process to get there, but a 15-year process just for that piece of property and all the things. And I can go back and I can show you historically the whole process and how we saw God open door after door after door along the way for us to purchase that property. And then we started down that process of planning and whatever. But as you know, recall the story, the price tag kept going up, up to $40 million plus. And no one could justify that. Nobody could, especially in our area. You couldn't justify a 40-month-year price tag. I mean, just the press alone would say, what on earth, how much good could you have done with that money if you didn't just build a building? And please know, if you're new or visiting, we're not building the Taj Mahal. If you look at it, it was actually a concrete and steel building. Now, we did concrete and steel, nice looking, but that's what it was. But that's just the price and the cost of doing the building. And so we said no. And I firmly believe, I've said this publicly, I'll say it again, I firmly believe that God saved us. Because we would have been on track, on time, we would have had that thing built and just ready to go, if you will, if it went our timing, just before coming into COVID. And then COVID came. And we would have been sitting in a big building. Well, first of all, take it back. We wouldn't have been sitting in a big building. For about a year and a half, we would be watching on TV from my office still. 
A big building sitting there with a huge debt. And let's be honest, the church, our church, every church in the country, radically different and radically changed. I have said over and over to God, God, thank you for saving us from that dilemma. But here's the perplexing piece. But God, why didn't you save us 15 years earlier? <laughs> right? Doesn't that make sense? If we have a moment where we go, God, I believe you, you, you saved us, but... Boom. Look at this marker right here. 16 years ago, you could have just said no. You could have closed this door, this door, this door, this door. Yeah, I could give you that same list. And the truth of it is, if you get stuck there, you'll be stuck there for a long, long time in your life trying to figure those things out. You see, God's promise to us is that he will always be faithful. That's his promise. And he always is. He also gives a promise that he'll always be on time. That's the problem is whose time? You see, Christmas really teaches us that God keeps his promise, but it also reminds us that something that we don't understand, and that is his timing. He makes the promise that he'll keep his word, but one thing we don't understand is the timing by which he keeps his words. Friends, there is a truth about God, how, about how God operates in our lives that is absolutely critical for you to know, grab hold of, and understand. That principle starts with this, God keeps his word, but... He will not be hurried, and he will not be rushed. That's the piece you have to get a hold of. He keeps his word, absolutely. In fact, there are times in our lives when God's timing will seem like, or, or God's delay, seeming delay, will seem to you to be completely inexcusable and unreasonable. In fact, I would go as far to say that just about every delay in your life when you're waiting on God will seem inexcusable and without good reason. It's the nature of how we operate. It's the nature of how the, the, the life we live. Do you realize that God promised the birth of Jesus Christ to Abraham? God actually promised the coming of Christ to Abraham, and yet that promise didn't get fulfilled for thousands of years later. God keeps his word. Now, this morning, I want to talk, talk through a story from the Gospel of Mark, and I want to see if we can learn some things that will help us in this idea of God's timing. I'll put a bunch of verses on the screen, but before that, I want to read to you just a few verses that set up the story. It's the beginning of the story, but I want to read them to you so you're not looking at a screen, you're just listening, and here's how it goes. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd had gathered around him while he was still by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter, my little girl is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and that she will live. And the simple statement next is, and so Jesus went with him. There's the beginning of the story. I'm going to read you more verses in a moment. And you'll read them along. But there's the beginning of the story. You have a father who runs to Jesus. Now, as he runs to Jesus, he's seeking him out. Not an accidental meeting. He goes to find Jesus, and he finds him. And when he does, falls at his feet, and he says, you have to help me. My daughter is near death. My daughter is dying. You're the only one. Please, please. That's what earnestly means. He pleaded with Jesus, please come with me so that she'll live. You are my only hope. I wonder... This morning, if we could see inside of everyone's heart, if we could see inside your mind and your heart right now, I wonder how many people are here today 
that are facing something in your life where you're before God earnestly saying, please, please, please do this thing. Please answer me. Please show up. Please, in this moment, I need you. I wonder how many of us would reveal that we're facing a moment like that where we're saying, oh God, please. Let me offer a prayer and then we'll get into the whole story. Father, this morning as we're gathered here, I know that in this room, I know that people watching online, I know that folks at North Avenue, I know that there are some of us, even perhaps many of us, that are facing moments in our life where we have that sense of earnestness. We have that sense of panic. We have that, that sense of, God, we need you pleading with you. God, please, please, please show up. It might be about our children. It might be about our marriage. It might be about a sickness. But we have those moments. And I pray that even in this moment, as we'll walk through these truths, that people would sense your presence in this place, sense your presence in this moment, And that as a result of that, there would be transformation in our lives. I don't want to preach today for the sake of information. We ask and we pray for transformation, that you would change us. Do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. With that backdrop, let me finish the story for you. Again, it's in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to pick up at verse 24. And in verse 24, it starts where I just ended, where it says, And so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought to herself, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came and she fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kaum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. There's our story. Now, let's be honest here with ourselves. Most of the times in our lives, when we believe that God's timing to be off are typically moments in our lives where we would question God's timing from the very beginning. 
Let's just be honest to ourselves that in our moments in our lives where God's timing is off, most of us view that timing, most of us see the, the moment as being critical and that any delay on God is quite inexcusable and quite unreasonable. And please know, you're not a horrible person to believe that, but that's how we operate. That when God doesn't show up in the critical nature of our moment, it seems like his delay is inexcusable because of the moment we're living in or certainly seems to be unreasonable. For many of us, when we're waiting for an answer that hasn't come, when something is going on in your life where you're just thinking, God, do something now, we seldom, if ever, have the attitude of, well, I'm sure there's a good reason why he hasn't shown up yet. When we're in the critical moment of battle, seldom in our lives, and I, I, I would say never, but I'll give, you, I'll give some of you super spiritual people a little room here, but seldom in our lives do we ever stop and say, I really need God right now, but you know what? He's probably got something better to do. We just don't do it. That is not how we operate. And this is a picture I want to kind of fill out for us. No, what happens in our lives when those moments come where we need a critical answer and God hasn't shown up, it doesn't make any sense to us. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, be sure to get the context and the whole picture of this scene. While Jesus is out leisurely walking and hanging out with the people, a synagogue leader comes around, and his name is Jairus. He's desperate. He's desperate, and he comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. Now, please know that this is not an accidental happening. When he comes to Jesus and sees him, he doesn't say, oh, I bumped into Jesus. No, he came specifically, and he's looking for Jesus. When it says that when he saw Jesus, it means when he found him. When he finally got through the crowd and actually got to Jesus, where he could have a face-to-face, he falls at Jesus' feet. My daughter is deathly ill. Please, please come. You're the only hope I have right now. If you would just come and touch her, she would be healed and she will live. Please, come before it's too late. It's exactly where we would be because she's on the verge of death. Come before it's too late and you can save her. Now note in the story, time at this, point, at this point is of the essence. This is like dialing 911 in an emergency. You don't want to hear from them, well, the crew is getting you know, coffee right now. As soon as they get back, I'll send them out. No, time is of the essence right now. This is urgent. And what would your approach be? If you're, if you're Jairus, if you're the mom or the dad, your approach to Jesus, if you're one of them, is going to be this. Listen, life is at stake. I mean, death, death is likely if you don't come. We need to do this right now. Please come. Time is short. Let's go. And so off they go. Jesus responds. He makes his case and Jesus says, let's go. Let's do it. Let's get going. And that's the picture you have to get. This is not a leisure walk. He comes and he makes his case before Jesus. I need you to come. My daughter's dying. Please come now. And when Jesus agrees, the picture we have here is this is not a leisure walk. He's not going to continue to walk around the market and say, yeah, I'll go with you, but let me finish my shopping first and some people I want to talk to. The idea is let's go. And when he says yes, off they go. And this is kind of a, uh, an urgent moment. This is lights and siren, if you will. This is the moment Jesus says, all right, let's go. Get the police escort. Off we go. They're moving. Now, they're not moving very fast because of the crowd, but they are moving because this is a moment of urgency. They are rushing to save the girl's life. And as they're on their way to do that through this crucial moment, Jesus feels someone touch him. And when this woman touches him, he feels power leave him. I don't know what that feels like. I don't understand it. But he knows it, and immediately he stops. He stops, and he wants to have a conversation with the person who touched him. An extended conversation. 
extended. Because in fact, we have in the accounting that while he's still talking to her, verse 35 says, while he's still in conversation, that's when the servants show up to say to, to Jairus that the daughter's dead. So he's having this extended conversation. Now, if you understand the context of what's happening here, and you can see it and feel it, you will understand the sarcasm of the disciples in this moment. So as they're rushing to get to the emergency situation, they're rushing to get home, Jesus stops and says to everybody, oh, stop a second, somebody, somebody touched me. Somebody touched me, and now he's looking, who, who touched me? And now you get some sarcasm from the disciples. Let me give you a picture. So we just came back from Germany, and on this pastor's group that I led and I took to the trip, we wanted to show them Christmas markets, the famous German Christmas markets. So I kind of planned the stage so we'd have a couple of hours at each one. But the one, the granddaddy of the mall I wanted to get to. Now, I did it for them. Um, I really like Christmas and markets. And so the granddaddy market is the Christmas market in Nuremberg. Nuremberg Market is one of the oldest Christmas markets in all of Germany. It's supposed to be fantastic. And so I made arrangements for us to get there. Two buses of people, 70 people. We'd get there with a very short amount of time. Maybe two hours if we were really on time. But enough just to get there. I'm beside myself. My wife can tell you. I just can't wait. We get there. I'm giddy as a kid. We come up. We we can't even get close to it. You got to park the buses far away. They drop us off. We get up and we get to the square where they're at. And it is thousands upon thousands of people, packed, jam-packed. I, to this day, cannot tell you what the Nuremberg market looks like, (laughs) even though we walked every aisle. I said, come on down, let's go. So we walked every aisle, up and back, up and back. We stood like this, we walked like this. I mean, literally masses of people. And I'm so excited, I said, isn't this great? (laughs) Mm, Yeah, maybe, maybe not so great. To this day, I can't tell you what it looks like because I couldn't get past the crowd of people. We were supposed to meet at a certain time. We had people who didn't get back in time because they got locked in and they could not get out. There wasn't a way out that many people. You have to get that context so you get this moment when Jesus is surrounded with people and he says to the disciples, I want to stop here because somebody touched me. And the disciples' response in verse 31 is, you see the crowd, you see the, the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? It is, it is heavy with sarcasm. It's, they better say this, you want to know who touched you? Why don't you say, who didn't touch you? Everyone touched you. I touched you. He touched you. She touched you. Pick a person. Everyone who's come near you has touched you. We walked through the Nuremberg Market. Everybody touched us. So that's their moment with Jesus. They're going, you got to be kidding me. Who touched you? You're rushing. We're rushing to the, to the fire here. We're all lights and siren. We're rushing to the scene. And you stop and ask who touched you. The disciples are totally perplexed by Jesus stopping. And if that's how they feel, how do you think the father felt, Jairus? When you're hurrying to the scene and in the middle of it, Jesus says, ah, someone touched me. I want to find out who. Beside himself. Here's a father, a little girl dying, slipping away, and Jesus wants to stop and talk. And while Jesus is still talking, the story says the servants come and they find Jairus and they walk up and they get right to the point. She's dead. Your daughter's dead. Stop bothering the teacher because it's over. And Jesus, as he's talking to this woman, hears the conversation when they say it's over. And he turns back to Jairus and says, no, it's not. It's not over. Just believe. It's not over yet. Just believe. Now, here's a point, friends. 
Do not be defeated in your life by what looks like inexcusable delays on God's part. Do not be defeated by what looks like inexcusable delays of what you've asked for. You see, God's grace almost never operates on my time frame. Make sure you get that. God's grace, I won't say, I'll say almost because sometimes it does, but God's grace almost never operates on our time frame or on the schedule that we feel best fits our expectations. If you do not understand that, you are in for a lot of anger and discouragement in your life because your view of God will be that he's never there on time. That's the storyline. Now, let me help you understand a key concept that will help us with this idea of waiting. And this, it's this, timing, the idea of what's fast or slow, the timing of what's what's on time or what's late is actually a relative thing. Would you not agree? The idea of timing is actually quite relative. I'll give you some examples. If I, if we set up an appointment for two o'clock, we're going to meet today at two o'clock. And if I'm not there by five after or 10 after, 15 after, what's the first words out of my mouth or yours typically would be what? I am so sorry I'm late. You know, in our culture, you're 5, 10, 15 minutes late. You're going to apologize, and you kind of expect that. You don't have a 2 o'clock meeting where you're sitting there waiting for someone, and they show up at 2.15, and nobody says they're sorry. That's just our culture. You expect that. Jump to Europe. If you're in Europe, and you set that same meeting for 2 o'clock, you know, if you're 15 to 20 minutes late, it's no big deal. Five minutes late, we're going to apologize. You know, in Europe, eh, 20, 25, then you might consider saying, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. But it's a different, it's a different time frame in how they operate. Let's switch again. Let's go to Latin America. Latin America, you don't need to worry about apologizing for being late until at least 45 to 50 minutes late. You can say, I'll meet you there at 2 o'clock. You get there at uh, 2.45. No one thinks any different. You just, hey, hi, how you doing? And off you go. You, you might feel like you should apologize, but nobody would expect that because that's the time frame. Let's keep going. Let's go to the Pacific Rim, South Pacific. Years ago, Diane and I were speaking in, in Malaysia, Penang, Malaysia, and Sunday came, we were going to go to the a large uh, English-speaking church in Penang, and, or the English-speaking service, I should say, and uh, our, our hosts who were going to pick us up and take us in the car uh, said, we'll be ready for church tomorrow. I said, oh yeah, what time's church? They said, 10 o'clock. I said, okay, what time should we be ready? They said, well, 10 o'clock. I said, well, I know, but I mean, what time is church? And they said, well, it's at 10 o'clock. What time are you picking us up? 10 o'clock. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're just having a communication breakdown. That they, they think I'm asking church start time. They're actually just telling me what time to pick me up. So it's just 10 o'clock. So we're ready at 10 o'clock. They show up. We get in the car. And on the way, we're talking. I said, so what time does church actually start? And he said, well, 10 o'clock. I mean, it's like an Abbott and Costello movie, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's like 10 o'clock. I said, well, it's, it's 10.15 now. We're just pulling into the church. He goes, yeah, starts at 10. I go, okay. Just, you know, one in Rome, go with it. Yes, so we get out of the car, we park, we go in. There's hardly anybody there. We get our seats. And I'm kind of laughing saying, well, I'm glad, I'm glad we got here on time. Um, now, here's the deal. I cannot tell you the exact time that church service started. I can tell you when I knew it had, that we, we were clearly in it. And by 11.15, we were clearly in the service and it was going. But I still can't tell you exactly when it started because I don't know. I mean, the pastor got up and started talking, but it didn't look like he was actually starting. I mean, the, the worship team started to do some music, but it didn't look like it started. And I can't give you that time frame. Why? Because it's a relative thing. Time is relative. Even in the front of the church, guess what it had on the sign? English-speaking service, 10 a.m. In our culture, that wouldn't fly. Let me bring up to speed a little more, more recent in our lives that we can relate to about relative. Remember when you were a kid and your birthday 
was so far away. Like you have your birthday and you wake up and it seemed like you were going to wait 10 more years before your birthday next. How does that feel now as an adult? I mean, my birthday comes every three months. You know, my family say, hey, happy birthday, dad. It's not my birthday. I refuse to accept it. I just had one because it's all relative. Or how about Christmas? We're in Christmas week. Every kid knows that this will be a torturous week because time will go so slow. And if you're one of those parents with young kids, you know that this week is going to go so fast because you wish you had more time. So that's the idea relative. Now, listen carefully to this transition. If time and, and space is a relative thing for us, how much greater so when you look at God? Because here's what the Bible says about God and his timing. Second Peter chapter 3. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Isn't that a great passage? If we don't get relative time issues, imagine the difference between us and God and timing when God says, you don't think I showed up, man. One day, a thousand years, a thousand years a day. And get that last part. And God said, and I always show up. He keeps his promises, even though for some of us it seems slow. So time is relative. Now here comes a key thought that we need to understand. Let me kind of expand this a little bit. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the disciples? I'll real quickly, I'll quick, uh, quickly tell you the story. Remember the story when he's on the boat and he's sound asleep in the, in the back of the boat, the bottom of the boat, in, the, in, the, in a raging sea? The disciples are scared to death that they think they're going to die. In the middle of all this raging storm, they're fearful for their lives and Jesus is sound asleep. Remember the story? And they finally go to wake him up and they wake him up and their words they say to him is this, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care that we're, we're on the verge of drowning here? They're in complete panic. Now listen carefully. There's a key premise that we actually believe which leads to our panic. If you've ever been in that case, in that spot with God where there's that panic moment, there's a premise operating in your life and it has operated in mine as well that kind of leads us to this place. The premise is this. If we love God, we should never be in difficult moments where we need him to show up quickly. That's the premise. The idea of the premise is this. If we love God, if we've given our lives to God, we shouldn't be in these moments. From a disciple's perspective is, hey, listen, we've given everything to follow you. We should not be afraid of drowning here. We should not be in a spot where we might possibly drown because we're following you. You're supposed to fix this before it gets to this level. That's the premise. See, the premise is this. We believe... I'll reverse it. Here's my premise. God, I believe in you. And so accordingly, you should be answering my prayers so fast and you should be meeting my needs so fast that I'm never in a difficult situation. Think about about that. That's the premise behind panic. Because we're in this moment and we're thinking, I shouldn't be here because God, you're not doing your job. Now, if that is your underlying premise towards God, If you are going to try to impose on him your self-appointed timeline, you are never going to feel loved by God. Never. Because you'll always feel that somehow he's abandoned you. Sometimes he's let you down. All the time he's looking the other way when he needs to be looking at you. Your view will be God's always late. Now here's the problem we face. If you have this hidden premise, and this premise is operating in our lives, that God should be so answering our prayers so fast, our needs so quickly, 
that we're never in trouble, then you're always going to have this view of life that it's no use. God doesn't care. Why bother praying? Uh, I ask for things that never happen. And so, eh, big deal. You just can't see how, a, how good can come out of the situation you're in because it's so dire. The result is your heart will always feel sick. Your heart will always feel empty. Your life will always feel miserable. And you think, well, what's the answer? Well, there is an answer. How do you, get, how do you move forward if you find yourself kind of falling into that pattern? In fact, Jesus gives the answer to us and the same answer he gave to this father of this sick girl and he says to him in the middle of the conversation, he hears it, don't forget, he turns and he says to this guy, hey, just believe. Just believe. Now I have to tell you, that by itself is pretty strong. That simply says, you know what? In the tough times, you just don't give up. You just believe. So I got that. And that's pretty powerful by itself. But hidden in plain view in the story are a couple of things, a couple of gems that I want to make sure that you understand because as we get to see them looking from the outside in, it will help you. It will help me in our waiting. A couple of things like this. First thing is this. The, this delay of Jesus in this moment teaches us of God's wisdom in every situation. Don't forget, we're on the outside looking in, so we get to see some things they wouldn't have seen. And the first thing we see is that God's seeming delay in our lives actually speaks to his wisdom in every situation. So here's the picture. Here in the story is a woman who's chronically ill. Not critically ill, chronically ill. She has a serious disease, she's had an issue of bleeding, and she's been living this way for at least 12 years that we know of. Now contrast her story to the little girl in the story who's gravely ill. Gravely ill. She is near death. Immediate attention is required. Ask any first responder, ask any EMT, ask any triage nurse, ask any emergency room doctor, who do you treat first? And they're going to say what? You treat the little girl first. She is the priority. Anyone will tell you that. Your own heart tells you that. This is the urgency. This is the moment. We treat her first. We care for her. Then we worry about the woman later. Everyone in the story thinks the same way that we would think. That Jesus is wrong. Jesus is, is, this is absurd. This woman can wait. This is not a big issue. Jesus will give her a card, tell her to email you on Monday. We'll deal with it later. But everyone would agree in the story, this was wrong. Problem is the people in the story, all of them, cannot, could not see what we get to see by reading the story and looking from the outside in. Things like this, first thing. We see that Jesus has no greater trouble healing a dead girl than he does a sick girl. You see, in their mind, it's like, if you don't get there too late, and Jesus' view is, <laughs> no, Diane, I'm not going too long. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't mine, I don't think. <laughs> Gotta make sure. No, I'm off. So somebody else, I don't know where that came from, not me. So we see, we, we see very clearly that why we think that time is of the essence, whether she's a dead little girl or a living little girl who's deathly ill, no greater work on his behalf. First thing we see. Second thing we see is that we can't see certain things, that we miss things that Jesus clearly sees. And I'll give you the, I'll, I'll fill it out for you. Now, the woman touches Jesus' coat and he's healed physically she's healed no question the bible says that she immediately stopped bleeding she could feel something happen so she didn't have to have a conversation for jesus for the healing to take place she's already healed but here's the question physically she's healed how about spiritually how about her heart body's transformed 
Heart's not transformed yet. And let's be honest, when we're talking about God and eternity, uh, don't you think spiritual healing trumps physical healing? I mean, the eternal peace, that's a critical issue. So none of that has happened. She was physically healed, but about the eternal peace, the spiritual peace, nothing had happened. Jesus knew that her spiritual condition needed to be talked and dealt with immediately. He also knew that it was that moment right then where he could have the spiritual conversation he needed to have with her. That was the priority. Remember, we can see things now that none of them could have seen in that moment in that time. In fact, let's jump into the father's shoes for a moment. For him, this stop makes no sense at all. In fact, it's an affront. It's an insult. My daughter's dying and you're going to stop and have a theological talk with this woman. This was an inexcusable delay from his point of view. And from your point of view, the delay that some of you might be experiencing in your life right now might just be completely inexcusable. Remember I said earlier, if we could see in some of your hearts, minds, you'd be facing something right now where you'd be saying, God, I need you to show up. I need it right now. And the fact that he is not to you might just feel like that's inexcusable. You might be discouraged. You might be fatigued. You might be frustrated. Maybe you've got health issues. You've got a marriage issue that's going on. It's not getting fixed. And you're having this feeling like, man, nothing good can come, can come out of this waiting any longer. We don't see what Jesus sees. So Jesus says to Jairus, what he says to you and to me, he goes, just believe, just trust me. It's not over yet, trust me. So the first thing we see in this picture, we see the wisdom of God in that moment. No one's thinking about this one's heart condition. The second thing we see in this moment, we see that this delay, in this delay, we see the true grace of God. Now some of you are gonna love this next piece, so stick in here. We see the true grace of God on display. Quickly look at these two primary characters in our story. You got Jairus and you've got the woman. First, Jairus. He's a leader in the synagogue, which means he would be a man of stature. He was a prominent man in the community. He would be a wealthy man. He would have means. He was a person that not only well-known, but well-recognized and respected. On top of that, he's a spiritual guy. He's got his moral act together. You know, he's following God. He's following the rules. He's living the righteous life. This is the perfect picture of the guy. So let's put the woman into the picture. First of all, she's a woman. She's a woman in a society where men viewed women as a status of property. They were not seen with respect or dignity. A woman was viewed as something to be owned. So first of all, we have a woman in the story that wouldn't have much stature. On top of that, she's economically destitute. The story says that everything she had, she had spent. She spent it all on doctors for 12 years. She's broke. She has nothing. On top of that, she's sickly, and she's got a bleeding disorder. If you know anything about that day and age, we've talked about this in the past, to have a disease that she would have had, a sickness that she would have had, would have isolated her from everyone. It's even amazing in the story that she'd be in a group of people. Because she wouldn't be allowed to be in a group of people. Because the fear of, of infectious disease. So she wouldn't even be allowed to be around people. And here she comes in close contact and she touches the coat of Jesus. I want you to see in this that we have this woman also in this picture. We got the mother, the, the daughter over here represented with the father, you know, acutely sick, ready to die. Now we have this woman, here she is. And in our culture, we would say, if there's anyone that would get our attention, it would be who? The guy. He'd be the one. These two are the exact opposites. They are the opposite socially, morally, economically. I mean, and yet Jesus stops for her. 
You see, in the world's point of view, Jairus is the one that we would stop for. He'd be the priority. He's got his act together. He's got all the things you'd want to see. And here he is falling at Jesus' feet, asking for help. And he's such a man of stature. He's the guy. Stop. This story is the perfect picture of God's grace. God's grace really is gracious. God's grace really is gracious. And he doesn't operate the way that we operate. You see, God's favor is not based on on your performance. It's not based on your wealth or your stature. God's grace is based purely on his blessing. One commentator wrote these words. He said this, unbelievable. Jesus Christ takes the time to comfort and teach an unclean woman with a chronic health issue, telling a male church leader, you're just going to have to wait. You can wait. And the writer says, absolutely unbelievable in that day and age. You see, friends, Jesus Christ takes the worldview, the world's standards of beauty and power and status, and he completely reverses it. God's grace really is gracious. Now, let me give you some application here. Listen carefully, because there are some of us who are here today that have such low, low self-esteem of ourselves that you view yourself in comparison to God as unworthy. There are people that will hear and watch this message, whether in the room or on recording, that you have such a low self-image of yourself, maybe because of your family, maybe because of your upbringing, maybe because of your past, maybe because of your, some decisions that you made, maybe your status, your economic status, whatever it might be, that you have this deep sense of being unworthy and you find yourself, even in this context, drawn into church and drawn into the, the conversation about God because it's so compelling to this need that you have and yet at your core you feel absolutely unworthy of God's love because of who you are or what you've done or your past. If we could see inside some of your hearts, some of you right now are saying, that's me, that's me, that's me. I don't feel worthy of the love of God. Some of you feel that. And God says to all those others who absolutely, who actually feel worthy, he says to them, you're just going to have to wait because I came for the ones that don't feel worthy. And for some of us that are feeling unworthy, you need to know that God would say to you, I am willing to put everyone else on hold because you are my priority. I came for those that don't feel worthy. What a great message in this story. Simply, we would miss it, simply realizing that Jesus stopped to talk to a woman with an issue. His grace really is gracious. Lastly, this delay by Jesus reminds us that he is absolutely trustworthy, no matter his perceived timing. This is really important for us because it's all about timing for us. Mark's gospel tells us that when Jesus healed the little girl, Jesus was very specific in his words and his actions. Here's what it says in verse, 50, in verse 41. So he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kaum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, he took her by the hand and he said that phrase, that statement. Now, the translation, little girl, uh, means more than what we have. Now, yes, Talitha means little girl, but in that culture, it would have much more meaning. It would actually be like a pet name. It, It has a different picture. Let me give you the picture. To understand it best would be for you to picture a father 
picking up his little girl and saying, come here, honey. Come here, sweetheart. If you want the real picture of this, a picture of this. Now, some of you will get this if you get children. We're now in the grandchildren age, so it's a little bit different, but we still get it. When you had young children, nap time was critical, right? Uh, I kind of forgotten how critical the nap thing is in timing until we're watching the grandkids and we get, we get direction, of course, from the parents through the years. Now, just, you know, side note, now I know some of my kids are in the, in the room right now. You know, these, these new parents, they think they have all the answers. <laughs> they don't. We know. But I do know one thing is that timing's critical. So you get the kids, sleep with the kids, and say, the, the, she needs a nap. Okay. What time? She's got to be down by one. Well, what happens if it's 105? You know, you get the time frame. Because you understand that you got to get them down a certain time, and then you got to get them up a certain time. You know, got to be by one. If it's after one, it's not going to work. Or if it goes too late, you got to get them up. You can't them sleep late. Why? Well, because then they're never going to sleep at home. Listen, if they're in my house, I don't care how long they sleep. <laughs> they're in my house. I don't care what they eat. You want more chocolate? Yeah, you can have more chocolate. It doesn't matter to me. In fact, with our kids, we've told them, hey, grandkids, they're our house. They're, they're my territory. But we do get the timing piece. But now get this picture. So you have a little girl sleep, a little boy sleeping, and you know they got to get up. Here's the picture I want you to get. Mom or dad knows that it's time for them to get up, and they walk into the room, and it's dark. And you don't just bounce on the bed. You walk in, and you slowly wake them, and you grab them, and hold, curl, kind of cuddle them, and you go, come on, sweetheart, time to wake up. That's the picture that we have in this moment. That's what those words mean. That Jesus would have come in in this tender form and grabbed a hold of her hand and said, come on, sweetheart, it's time to get up. Now, add to that that when he says get up, he's not pronouncing it as a command. This is not like him in front of the tomb with Lazarus where he stands there and says, come forth. Doesn't do that. No great pronouncement. Get this picture, if you will. He's no shouting. He doesn't say, rise. No, none of that. And on top of that, this picture, is he walks over in simple quietness and simply says, come on, sweetheart. Time to wake up. Now, hear this next statement. What a picture of God's power. Think about that. What a picture of God's power. Here Jesus faces our greatest earthly enemy, death. I mean, the one, the one villain in our stories that we cannot defeat, if you will. We're all going to face death, and we hate it. We don't want to see it. Now, I get it. We want to see Jesus one day. Can't wait to go home. But knowing that I know, says, oh, I can't wait to go through the death process. It is our enemy. Here Jesus Christ stands before our arch enemy, death. And when it comes to this moment, he doesn't say, whoa, better stand back and start rolling up your sleeves. This one's going to be a tough one. He doesn't say, everybody get behind me. Who knows how this is going to go? What does he do? He walks up, takes her by the hand and says, come on, get up. Death, enough of you. Get out of here. Sweetheart, it's time to get up. Friends, you, won't get a better, you, will, you will not get a better picture of the power of God that he would look at death and simply say, enough of this. Time for you to go. His power over the greatest enemy, death, is effortless. Here's what that means, friends. If you have Jesus Christ in your life, quite honestly, you can laugh at death. It doesn't mean that we want to go through it, but we know the outcome. We know the end of the story. In fact, one wrote, I love this. Tim Keller said this statement. I love this statement. To the one who trusts in God, death is nothing more than a good night's sleep. What a great picture. To the person who has their trust in God, death is nothing more than a good night's sleep. Come on, sweetheart, it's time to get up.
But not only does it show his power, but even the way I've said the wording, it shows his tenderness. Listen, folks, this God that we have, this is the parent that you long for. This is the parent you want to have. Listen, I love my mom and dad, and they did a great job, but they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But this parent, this is the perfect parent. This is the one you want. The parent that takes you by the hand, the parent that never fails you, never lets you down. The parent who it doesn't matter to that parent what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters not, listen carefully, it matters not, it matters not if you're on the paid staff here in the church. It matters not if you're pastoral staff. It doesn't matter if you're an elder or a church leader. It doesn't matter if you're a first-time visitor or you're a mafia mob hitman. It just doesn't matter. God loves you. And if anything, he's come to the people who have failed the most, the people who feel the least worthy. He comes and he demonstrates his grace and he takes you by the hand and he says, come on, sweetheart, time to get up. No condemnation. I know what some of you've done. I know what I've done. I know my past. You've got a past. I get it. But when he comes to take you by the hand, you don't hear from him say, well, first, let's deal with some issues. No condemnation. Nothing like, well, how, first of all, how could you do that? Nope. Nope, none of that. Come on. It's time to get up. And whatever you're facing right now, Whatever the situation, wondering if God is late, please hear me. Do not hurry a God like this. Don't try to press a God like this and hurry him or rush him. Not a God who sees what you don't see. Not a God who loves beyond what you can imagine love can look like. Not a God who has wisdom that you can't begin to fathom. Don't rush a God who has the power to look at death and whisper and death runs away afraid. Don't hurry him. And the truth of it is, some of you right now are in your life moment where you are trying to hurry God because it seems hopeless, it seems dark, it seems like you need an answer and you need it right now. Do not hurry this kind of God because he always gets it right. Maybe you're angry, maybe you're frustrated. Because there's no good reason that you can see for his delay. Friends, do not confuse your agenda for God with your faith in God. And don't confuse your agenda for him, for your faith in him. God loves you so much. God is so much wiser than you. He's so much more gracious than you can imagine. Don't hurry him for your agenda. I'm asking you to stand. I want to sing together a song. Then I'm going to come back and I'll have a closing word in prayer. But stand if you would as we're led in a song. All my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs as I often do, but every song must end and you Cause all that I 
like the wording in that way so I throw up my hands not our kind of throw up like oh I throw up my hands in worship of you so a closing thought here I would guess when I talk a story like this and Jesus says to Jairus just believe that there'd be some of us that would say oh I wish I could do that do you ever find yourself saying I wish I had that kind of faith I, I, I wish I could just believe like that that feeling with, I, I just wish I, I had that kind of confidence. But I want to end with this. Make sure you look at what Jesus said to Jairus. He did not say, don't doubt, just believe. Look what he says. Well, we're hearing what they said. Jesus told him, 
Don't be afraid. Just believe. That's kind of important. You see, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is cowardice. Think about that. You don't have to have this rock-solid faith and confidence. You just got to say, God, I'm going forward. And I'm not going to be afraid. So you say, Scott, I thought you said it was a Christmas message. Well, it is. Because that word pleroma that Paul used to describe Jesus coming into this world as a baby is the same word I would use from you right out of that Christmas story. At just the right time, God always shows up on his timing, not ours. Father, dismiss us in your grace. For the person this morning that's so desperate for an answer, might they walk out of here a little more relaxed and relieved knowing that you are never, ever late. Dismiss us in your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.